Welcome to Howden's new podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Hello and welcome to Howden's podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. My name is Jenny Screech and I'm a consultant with the Solicitors Professional Indemnity Team here at Howden Insurance Brokers. In today's podcast, we want to focus on secondments. Professional services firms, lawyers, accountants quite often place one of their team on secondment, usually with a client. We want to explore some of the issues and risks that you might need to consider when you do this. To help with this, we have Will Sefton and Kelly Thompson with us today. Both Will and Kelly are partners at law firm RPC. So a warm welcome to you both, and perhaps you could start by each uh, telling us a little more about your areas of expertise. Kelly. Thanks, Jenny. Lovely to be here. So I am an employment lawyer for my sins. I am a partner in our team that we call Employment Engagement and Equality. We act almost exclusively, but not entirely for employers. And the kind of work that we do is everything that you would expect an employment team to do. Anything related to people, organisational change projects, restructurings, reorganisations. We also do a lot of litigation. And I, in particular, do quite a lot of advice for clients in the diversity, equity inclusion space as well. So how do you make your workplaces work best for all of your people in, and help create that environment where people can bring their best selves to work? So yeah, it's busy. <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. And Will? Yeah, I am a partner in our professional risks team. I principally focus on advising lawyers and law firms on issues around risk and regulation. But I also defend directors and um, in the team that I'm in, we do a lot of work for accountants firms and IFAs and other professional services firms. So I think today's topic is one of uh, is one of interest across the whole piece. It certainly is. So, Will and Kelly, as you know, we start our podcast uh, with an icebreaker question, and it's focused on risk. So I want to ask each of you to tell us about an occasion um, when you took a risk and how it worked out for you. So Kelly, we'll start with you. I'm such a lawyer in the sense that I'm naturally super risk adverse. So it takes me approximately 200% more time than it should to make any decision that has a level of risk. But So this might not sound that risky to anyone who isn't that way inclined, but I very recently got a tattoo, um, which was felt like a risk to me because I was lawyering my way out of the decision. Like, what if I change my mind? What if suddenly um, we're required to wear something that would show it, et cetera, et cetera. But do you know what? I actually am really pleased that I did it and I haven't regretted it yet, although it has only been a few weeks. So maybe you could get us back on in a year, Jenny, and ask me how and that risk has turned out then when it's aged a bit. Ask you again. Well, <laughs> that certainly sounds very brave indeed uh, to me. So, Will, what about you? Oh, I can't compete with that. I didn't know about that, Kelly. But um, the, <laughs> I, I, um, I do quite a lot of risk-based sports. I quite like the adre- adrenaline, so I'm quite into mountain biking and skiing and things like that. But the most recent risk that I took was to agree to play rugby with my nephews um, (laughs) over the Christmas period on a beach. And uh, the last time I think I was involved in that kind of thing with them, they were about five years younger. And now they're all in their mid-teens going to the gym three times a week. And uh, yeah, it worked out slightly differently to how (laughs) I I was was being put on my uh, 
well, I won't, I won't say it, but uh, yeah, I was being put in my place. Yes. Frequently. Yes. Well, <laughs> again, definitely another very brave, uh, brave decision, it sounds to me. That's excellent. So let's move on to talk about secondments. Now, as we said, professional services firms second people to uh, clients all the time for obvious commercial reasons. So just want to talk firstly about the key issues and, and risks. So Kelly, if I can turn to you first to talk about this from the employment perspective for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, Neither Will or I or any of our colleagues are ever going to say secondments are so risky, don't do them. That's absolutely not where, where we sit. And there, as you said, Jenny, there are so many commercial and, and individual, actually, for the secondi, beautiful reasons why secondments are a fantastic kind of thing to do. From, from an employment perspective, I think the risks derive from the fact that really what you're doing is taking a relationship between two parties, so the employer and the individual employee, and you're kind of dividing it into these two constituent parts. So on the one hand, you're saying everything operational, day-to-day, what work you do, the way you do your work, when, where, how, all of that moves with the secondee to the the client, to the kind of host organization. Whereas the the more maybe esoteric relationship type stuff, whether you, um, what what you're paid, whether you have a pay review, your appraisals, any problems like disciplinaries, grievances, sickness, performance management, all of that stuff stays and it absolutely has to stay with the employer. So you can, if you think about that, you can kind of see immediately how that looks pretty simple on paper, but it creates these tensions because there's not always bright lines between those two bits of the relationship. And the, the example I always talk to clients about is, you know, what, where's the where's the line between sort of firm management and supervision and telling people, you know, giving them feedback and constructive criticism, quite rightly would sit with the host, with the client who's telling, you know, the individual secondee what work to do and how to do it. Where does that shade into performance management or even into sort of a disciplinary space, which very much should only sit with the employer, with the law firm, with the accountancy firm, with with the professional services firm. And so it's those sorts of tensions um, where the risks can arise, where you get one organization inadvertently usually sort of stepping into the territory of the others. And the flip of that as well is if you think about it, I always think of like the first day I sent my children off to school. It's like, oh my goodness, you don't you don't lose any sense of responsibility for them, but you aren't in control of it. You can't see what's happening. Other people have I'm not comparing employees to children, by the way, just to be totally clear. Because there's some role on Friday story that I've seen employment partner compares employees. I'm not saying that. But but there's a similarity in the sense that you don't lose or diminish any of your responsibilities for that individual yet you don't, as the employer, have the level of control or visibility that you would if they were sitting with you and you were directing everything. So that's where the risk kind of comes into it from an employment point of view. Right. And so how do you manage those, you know, sort of unclear lines? How how would you approach or how would you advise people to approach yeah. Close your eyes and hope for the best. Right. Um, absolutely not. Close your eyes and hope for the best. I think We'll talk about this common agreement as well because it's quite a key document for managing some of these. It's not a panacea. You can't always write down, however much you think about it, all of the potential risks and devise a strategy for dealing with them. But you can use that agreement. That's a common agreement between the host and the employer to really good effect to sort of try and work through some of these issues like who is responsible for this? 
and who's responsible for that and where there's an overlap how do we manage that between us because a lot of it's not insurmountable it's just actually thinking about it um and oftentimes that gets missed because the secondment is set up in haste or actually it's done on the back of a conversation or emails and because it's within a trusted relationship almost all of the time you can see how people can get a little bit lax understandably about nailing some of that stuff down the other bit about it though is that relationship with the individual secondee i think we can often do better at um talking to and training our secondees in what the risks are some of the things that Will will talk about, um, what their obligations are and what the where the support is for those tricky issues that they might face during that comment. Sometimes that gets missed and we send these often very junior people out without that kind of safety net or that obvious safety net, which I think is where the challenge comes in. Okay, that's really helpful. So at that point, perhaps, Will, if we can turn to you to talk about you know, some of the regulatory liability um, risks and, and how to manage those. Yeah, so what we... What I think comes up quite frequently is you're asking, and as Kelly said, these things are often set up in haste, a client in need. You know, it's a great opportunity to answer a client's call for urgent help. So you're really keen to help and really keen to help quickly. Quite often we're asking fairly junior lawyers in in the case of law firms, but I'm sure the same issues arise in the other professional services firms as well. Quite often asking fairly junior people to go and navigate quite difficult terrain around confidentiality. I suppose confidentiality is probably the key issue. So junior, you know, I'll stick with law firms just for context, but a junior lawyer who knows that from the firm's perspective, um, the whole, the sort of real beauty of this opportunity is the ability to create opportunities for their employer firm Mm -hmm. by getting into a client, learning as much as they can about the client, make sure their law firm is presented with the opportunities to to sort of win work and meet people. And quite a lot of that involves, you know, navigating the terrain around, well, what's confidential to the the host, the client? What can you share back with um, your employer firm? How do you sort of try and create those opportunities for the firm, but without crossing the line and, and giving up information that's confidential to the host. So I think that issue is one that's probably not thought through as much as, as often it should be. It's one of the things that, that is covered off in a good secondment agreement is, is the sort of the, the conversation around well, what information can be shared. And then you have the um, issues that come up after the secondment's finished, Again, this person, you hope, although as we've um, talked about before, they often don't come back. Secondees often don't come back. And, and as, a, as a firm, you go into that with your eyes open. But if they do come back, um, and obviously in many cases they do, they come back with a head full of confidential information. Lawyers are used to dealing with that because we deal with that on a day-to-day basis without secondments. We're often in our head holding lots of different confidential information that may be of use and interest to other clients and we know how to to withhold it but it's it can be a bit different if you've become very embedded with a particular client relationship then to try and remember what information you you learned while on secondment so what information is confidential to the client and what information have you have you sort of learned that isn't confidential and which bits can you share and which bits you can't. So I guess it's it's really important to have the discussion with the employee at the point that they go on secondment and again at the point that they re- 
turn to identify these issues and and, and set a, a framework for them. Yeah, I agree. But you can't possibly, and you wouldn't want to have them come back and try and download in any way the confidential information that they've learned. And in, in any event, you couldn't just because of the scale of it. But yes, you're right. I mean, you need to have the conversation before they go. You need to make sure that they're comfortable with the regulatory regime around confidentiality, yeah. um, conflicts of interest. Again, that's something that, mm -hmm. that people need to be very aware of. Um, I mean, just to take an example, if somebody is involved on a, in a big project when they're at a client, when they come back, they obviously have to keep that information confidential. If somebody else in the firm is instructed on that project, but on behalf of a of a a sort of another party to that project, situations arise where the partner might ask the the previously seconded person if they can get involved on that project. And you have to rely on the second D or the former second D to know yeah. without giving any confidential confidential information away to say, I can't help on this one for reasons that I can't explain. Yes. And then to make sure information barriers are put up. It's the kind of thing that just, if it's not thought through, you just accidentally walk into issues of, you, you know, imagine the second D doesn't spot that, the yeah. partner doesn't spot it, that person ends up involved in the project later on when they've got information from the new client as well as the, the the former host client they're in a can't speak must speak dilemma where they owe a duty to tell both clients if you like it confidential information that belongs to the other and those are a nightmare for yes. law firms um, and i'm sure for other firm, um, professional services firms as well so and, and they can be very expensive and costly in terms of commercial relationship to untangle so it's about having the junior people properly, um, if, if they are junior, properly trained, supervised. That conversation needs to happen, not just at the beginning and the end, but during the secondment. Yes. Helping them navigate those issues, making sure that they know to pick up the phone to the, the culp or the head of risk. Whenever anything comes up that they're not sure about, they need to speak to somebody. Right, right, yes. So that they understand that they're they're not abandoned for these difficult issues. There's somewhere for them to go yeah. to. Um, yeah, and I'm sure Kelly would say the same. But yeah. the, I mean, good practice would be to be having a monthly, yeah. at least, check-in. Absolutely. Between the seconding partner. Yeah. And the and the secondee, just to check that the issues aren't arising. Yeah. Make sure that if they, if you as the partner feel that they're about to start telling you things that they shouldn't in their enthusiasm to show you how beneficial this is. Yeah. I'm learning all this amazing <laughs> stuff. You'll never guess what this client is getting involved in in X area or Y division. And you say, uh, great, that's great. I'm really glad you're enjoying it, but be careful you can't tell me some of that stuff. Yes. So, yes. you know, you have to help help them manage. But the temptation, obviously, on the on the law firm's part is to be learning. So it's it's a, the, the, it has inbuilt into it a tension between the commercial drivers of why you're doing it and the confidentiality issues that arise if right. if they share too much. Right, right. Yeah, okay. So in, in the context of this, we've talked about the secondment agreement. In your experience, you know, how common is it that these actually get completed and, and, <laughs> and signed up or are they more a aid memoir in terms of a prompt for people to work through the through the issues? It's a great question. I mean, I'm interested in what you in what you've seen, Will, but for me, 
I suppose in a way I'm probably not the best person to ask because if I've been involved in it, it's more likely to have got signed because somebody's thought to bring a lawyer in to look at it. Certainly when things have gone wrong, you quite often find the agreement hasn't been signed or perhaps isn't even kind of in in negotiation. Um, I think there's more awareness of the need to have some of this stuff locked down, if, if not all of the things we've been talking about, at least the kind of financial aspects of a secondment and the length of time, the sort of operational piece of the jigsaw. Um, whether you see secondments signed uh, that deal with all of these sorts of nuances, I'd say less frequently perhaps than, than is ideal. Um, I do think, picking up on what you said there, Jenny, I do think there is some benefit even where it's not signed in, that you've hopefully surfaced some of these issues in conversations. So sure, you haven't got something you can rely on in a dispute, but in reality with a client, you're unlikely to ever be in that situation of looking to enforce a, a breach of contract claim. It's more going to be about how you actually deal practically with the issue that's come up and at least having had those conversations, even if you never signed it, has sort of tested some of that. But obviously in an, in an ideal world and with my um, lawyer hat on, um, you absolutely want to have nailed down some of this stuff. And that, that's where the challenge arises because as we were all saying before, it happened so quickly. So I think there's something to be said for getting a standard agreement and it sounds so boring, but having an agreement for your organization that you know is the belt and braces that covers all of these things. Because then when you go into bat in that conversation with your client, you're able to make informed choices about what you're not covering off. So yes, you might decide to, to negotiate and concede like the indemnity that you would ideally have, but at least you know you've done that and that there must therefore be an additional risk that attaches to that secondment. You make the commercial call either way as to whether that the benefit of this common outweighs that risk. And then hopefully, if you want to be perfect in your process, somebody at your end almost has like a risk register, I guess, of this secondment is one with a high le higher level of risk, either because we haven't got the indemnities that we'd want or because we haven't got the ability to get the information that we might need to manage this secondee in the way that we would want to or whatever the kind of risk is that you've decided to accept in that negotiation. Whereas I think oftentimes it all happens so quickly, people haven't focused on what they're not getting in that agreement or what they're giving in that agreement. And then it only ever really comes to light after a problem's arisen. And that's obviously not what anybody wants, um, even though you know, as lawyers, we quite like trying to deal with messes after the fact, not not in our own organisations, ideally. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, and that, that point about indemnities is is fundamental. There's, from a risk point of view, there's a really important sort of transfer of risk that they are providing this service when on succumbent, they're providing the service to the to the host and they're working under the host's supervision and control. So as a as a law firm sending somebody on secondment, that lawyer, if they do get something wrong on secondment, that is not the law firm's. You need you need it to be very clear and understood that that is not the law firm's liability. That's not going to hit the law firm's PI insurance. And the secondment agreement is really important in terms of setting that out and making sure that you know proper indemnities are in place. What the secondment agreement won't help you from, and it's another risk that. Um, that I've seen and, and that people need to be conscious of is, is around, again, that support that can be given um, and should be given, but it's just about taking care when the, the secondee calls in for help on a technical issue, 
And this is something that law firms do all the time. We do that kind of informal, oh, I think I can help you with this problem. We don't open a matter. We don't do conflict checks. I know that it happens all the time. But the liability, the risk transfer that can happen there where you end up being liable. There was a horrible case a number of years ago where um, somebody on secondment, um, yeah, was involved in setting up an agreement that was used, I think, hundreds of times, and it had a, a problem in it that caused the host to suffer large losses. Um, and then there was an argument between the host and the law firm. And I think in that case, the, the host, the secondee, had asked somebody back out the firm for some help with the drafting. Right. And so it wasn't as clear cut as if it had just been the secondee, I think it would have been very clear cut. You know, regrettably, people make mistakes, but they they made that mistake on your watch, not on ours. And we couldn't supervise them and we didn't have any chance to put it through a a usual sort of supervision process. So if a mistake was made, but it wasn't spotted, that's not the law firm's fault. But if the law firm has been involved in it, even in an informal way, then obviously then that makes it much, much less clear cut. And maybe the law firm then is responsible and it is going to hit the law firm's PI. So I think there's a, again, those informal situations, they happen a lot on secondments. They also happen with things like advice lines and um, sort of clinic style Mm -hmm. things that we're all, again, familiar with. Great things to offer to clients, Mm. but you've got to make sure you get them set up right and that you get the risk risk transfer right. Yes, the the whole professional indemnity side of it needs to be be carefully managed, doesn't it? Very dull, Jenny, but it does. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Just one final um, question. We have touched on it already, but what we do often see is when a person goes on secondment, they decide they rather like it there and stay, which means that um, the professional services firm loses a a very valued employee. Do you see things in um, secondment agreements where there's an undertaking not to poach the um, employee and how how does that play out? Yeah, it happens a lot of the time, absolutely, as you say. And as Will said, it's sort of almost built in as a kind of a risk of, of, of doing it. From a sort of drafting perspective, absolutely, there's a pretty standard clause. I see in lots of agreements that talks to you won't poach our people. In reality, whether a firm would ever look to enforce that kind of thing against a client from a commercial yes. perspective is a completely different question. And then the other thing, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm just feeling particularly sort of hippie today. I talked about my tattoo. Now we talk about my <laughs> tambourine play. Um, but I, I kind of feel a bit like as an employer, you've got you've got a choice always, haven't you, with your really talented people. You can either do everything you can to sort of put them in a jar on a shelf and keep them away from the world in hopes that they will stay with you. Or you can kind of let them fly. And I, I like to sort of think of it like that in a way. Ultimately, if an individual ha- is going on to comment, that risk exists. If that's somebody who you absolutely cannot lose, you need to do something more than just put a clause in a secondment agreement and hope for the best. You need to be managing that relationship. You need to be incentivizing that person. You need to be providing a career path that keeps that person engaged with you. But ultimately, if they decide your place is not for you, then probably the best you can do is hope that they will look to instruct you in their new home. But go on, Will, tell me why that's too hippie. No, it's not. No, not at all. I mean, uh, absolutely. Some of our biggest and best, most longstanding clients are full of former colleagues, RPC people all over the place. And 
um, you go into those situations totally eyes open. You're trying to have the closest, strongest relationship you can can with the client. You send somebody on to comment knowing that that this is a absolutely a risk that they might not come back. But as Kelly says, if that suits the individual better, that's what they'd rather do. Then the last thing you want to do is sort of hold them back from it and think what a brilliant asset they can be for you on the other on the other side of the relationship. I mean, obviously, yeah, sometimes it happens and you didn't see it coming and you're very sad about it. But if that's what the individual would rather do, then um, then you you would want them usually to, to do it, however hard it might be to swallow at the time. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, it's happened lots of times to us. I think generally we yeah, the clause is there. Sometimes it can be useful as a bit of leverage. Maybe it can help you get a, a bill paid that's, uh, that's a bit old, or it just creates a bit of extra goodwill that you've been so uh, sort of uh, magnanimous about your, your loss. So yeah, it's, um, it's absolutely a, a risk of it, but can Great. be a benefit as well. Thank you. Well, thank you both very much for your uh, time today. It's been really interesting uh, to discuss these issues. Certainly there's quite a lot to think about and a great deal more than I would have uh, contemplated. And I'm sure that our listeners will find it very helpful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.